1: Hey, welcome to the show. So happy as always that you're tuning in to another episode of Dose of Leadership. You know, you think about the purpose of listening to podcasts and why I'm doing this show. It's it's about learning, right? It's about giving you tools to help you fight for that survival, right? As entrepreneurs, as leaders, you got growing businesses, you got family, you've got the COVID situation, you got to make critical strategic decisions. The competition's always nipping at your heels. The future's never certain, right? You've heard me say this time and time again that. Fear and uncertainty never goes away. And as leaders, to become an effective leader, I think you got to get comfortable with that. And like, how do you navigate throughout all that chaos, all that noise? And one of the things that you do to help navigate is find mentors, find people, find podcasts. Bring people on the show that have seen business through the ins and the outs that can offer guidance that will help you maybe exponentially tip the odds into your favor so that you can be successful. That's one of the reasons why we do the show. And man, bringing on today's guest is one of those that can certainly do it. If you listen to any episode, this should be the episode you listen to all year. Particularly interested in business, entrepreneurship, and leadership, and becoming a better leader, Bob Rosenberg is on the show. And Bob took over as CEO of Dunkin' Donuts in 1963, 13 years after his father founded the first restaurant. And Bob took it on this remarkable 35-year run. He grew the company from $10 million in sales to over $2 billion with over 3,000 outlets. He's seen and done everything when it comes to leadership and business, taking literally Dunkin' Donuts through three or four life-or-death-type situations where the company was literally on the brink. Bring it out of that. He talks about his journey from a leader who was kind of externally looking at everything else for all the solutions to overnight reading a book, and that book was called The Best and the Brightest by uh, David Holmstrom, a book about the Vietnam War about the and, and the policies and the honest assessment and look came out in 1972 about the consequences of the kind of screwed up policies as it, as it pertained to Vietnam. And it was after reading that book that he went on this lifelong journey. He said it was night and day immediately after reading that book that, look, I have to become this selfless leader. It's all about me, the accountability, all the things we've talked about on this show. And I love his view of leadership. He thinks leadership is paramount. He, he thinks it's part art and part science. And I love the art side of it where he thinks like things like empathy, creativity, aspiration, introspection, particularly the introspection piece. You've heard me talk about that so many times on this show. You know, it's that self-awareness piece, those emotional quotient pieces of leadership that are so important. He's got a brand new book that's coming out as I'm releasing this today. It's October 13th, 2020. And he's got a book called Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons, I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts, a fantastic book. And he talks about, he dives into all of these leadership lessons, business lessons about, like I said, leadership is paramount, quality, tasks and character of an effective CEO, how to be innovative, creative, creative, picking a successor, finding mentors, succession, all of those things. And um, it's just a fantastic conversation. I could stop the show today and this be my last episode. And I would be perfectly happy with that because everything we talked about encapsulates everything that I've talked about the last eight years on the show. He does such a fantastic job. He's a leader that's been there, been there, done that. He validates everything that we talk about on the show, about the importance of selfless leadership, about working on yourself constantly, of having this humble, teachable spirit coupled with this intensity of will. That is the the sweet spot. That's what we should be striving for. And I couldn't have been more thrilled with this conversation. And I think you're going to be as well, too. I'm so excited for you to tune into this episode. This episode is brought to you by a brand new sponsor. I'm so happy to have Hutton. Hutton as a sponsor of this show. They design, build, and service commercial construction projects all throughout the Midwest. They're longtime fans of the podcast, and I love them because they're committed to the highest standards in leadership, and and again, they're supporting those of leadership as a sponsor. So happy to have them here. They're behind so many projects, so many stunning structures that I've come across, didn't know that they built, found out that they built them. I mean, they've done remodeled hospitals, medical offices, manufacturing, industrial facilities, municipal buildings, financial institutions, churches, schools, all spaces, all sizes. And what I love about them is that they're architects and builders, because if you're wanting something built, wouldn't wouldn't that what you want, right? A single trusted partner to work with from start to finish. It's what most clients are asking for these days. They get that at, at Hutton. No drop balls, only their vision delivered from paper to structure. And to them, it's more than a construction project. It's a creative endeavor. And I love that about them. I love, too, from their culture how they put people over projects. That's one of the reasons why I really am proud to have them as a sponsor. They always put people over projects. That goes to how they treat their clients, their employees, how they serve the community. Character counts for them. That's how they select their staff, their subcontractors, how they serve their community. And it's not lip service or public relations play. I know the CEO personally, and I know he's the real deal. The company's the real deal. They're professional, hardworking, charitable, all those Midwestern values in all the best ways. That's their culture. It's just who they are. That's Hutton. So go check them out. HuttonBuilds.com slash TogetherWeBuild. That's HuttonBuilds.com slash TogetherWeBuild to learn more about Hutton. Let's get on with this conversation with the one and only Bob Rosenberg, former CEO of Dunkin' Donuts, here on Dose of Leadership. Well, Bob Rosenberg, on Dose of Leadership, former CEO of Dunkin' Donuts. Man, I, I am so excited to have you on the show. Welcome. My pleasure. Well, you got this new book coming out in October Around the corner to around the world your lessons of uh, that you learned running Dunkin Donuts. I love Dunkin Donuts by the way. I think their coffee's outstanding. I'm a pilot and I I'll go through the airport. I always bypass Starbucks. Sorry Starbucks and I always go straight to Dunkin Donuts. I don't that coffee's just so good to me. Music to my ears. <laughs> you know, I was reading your bio and it said that you graduated from Harvard Business School. Tell me is this right? And then you're 25 and you became the CEO when you're 25? Is that right?
2: That's correct. Oh Within weeks God. of my graduation. I, I had— In my early career, I basically virtually grew up uh, over the store. I worked in lots of different jobs within my family business, which was not called Dunkin' Donuts, it's called Universal Food Systems, and a variety of different jobs. And I went to hotel school, then went into the army, and uh, then I went on to graduate school. And uh, I expected to join the family business, but Lord knows, I, I had no expectation that at 25, my dad, who was only 47 at the time, an eighth-grade educated guy, would turn to me and and ask me if I wouldn't take over the responsibility as CEO of that his business, and a uh, breathtaking uh, request. And uh, one took me a few weeks to decide upon, but ultimately, it was the best decision I ever made.
1: Man, well, yeah, obviously, a life-altering, one of those decisions in life that, that- was definitely a Y intersection in the road and and you had to make a choice and you went down that path and there was no looking back once you did. But man, at 25, I can't imagine, you know, that was almost 27 years ago for me. And just the, the leadership lessons I've learned from 25 to 52 have been exponential. I can only imagine with your experience, it had to be at a minimum, exponential. So the type of leader you were at 25 to when you stopped in 1998, what do you think the big differences were?
2: And One of the things that was an advantage uh, early on in the first sort of era, I, I break the book down into the six eras that I, that I, I see as uh, the company history from 1963 to 1998. But in the first era, the big help was business school. Mm-hmm. And it was there that I learned the language of strategy. I would love to say that I came to the job as a cocky 25 year old and knew it all. Right. I think as I matured and, and made my mistakes and boy, did I make a lot of mistakes <laughs> over those 35 years. Yeah. Is that uh, the thing that I think that, that grew was my emotional intelligence. Sure. the ability sure. To better understand myself and, and in a way to hopefully understand my teammates around me and franchise owners and, and the people that I came in contact with and consumers and, and it was a journey. I mean, I, I would absolutely say that uh, you, and it's an old saying, but it's true in my case. You know, you can't put an old head on a young body. and You do have to sort of learn uh, yeah. through yeah. trial and error. Yeah. And I think, quite truthfully, in my case, the setbacks that I experienced were more informative and more useful than the successes. In fact, the big mistake uh, the, after the five, first five years of tremendous success, the second five years were really difficult and and it really came as a result of the success in the first five years it became an impediment to future success and it wasn't until unfortunately i almost led the team off a cliff in the second five year era uh that i really began to start to learn the more effective lessons about who i was what my responsibilities were um as a leader Um, and it came from a book of all places. really my, my sort of aha moment, the transformational
1: moment for me. You said a, 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 a book that you read was kind of a transformational moment, an aha moment, or is oh, that what? This was, was in the
2: second year of, a second era of my uh, my stint as CEO. And uh, after the first five years, I basically was under pressure to go public. And, sure. And, uh, and when I came out of business school, I, as I say, I inherited a company called Universal Food Systems, where eight little businesses, and it was, a, it, was a, it was chaos and fundamentally, what the team did is we basically narrowed that down to one. Uh, we had a, a really been experimenting with far too many businesses. And we basically decided to exploit the, the sort of the diamond in the rough that we had, which was uh, a bunch of stores that in many cases sold breakfast and lunch. but it was called Dunkin' Donuts and made donuts and coffee. And we decided to focus on our core business. And that was extraordinarily successful. And we went from $100,000 in pre-tax profit within five years to $750,000. And we went public because my dad had been trying to sell the business uh, while I was in business school, was unable to sell it for a million dollars uh, and become the millionaire he always wanted to be after taxes. And that was the reason he turned to me, I think, at that young age. is uh, He wasn't quite sure what to do and, 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 and put me in charge. And then I changed the mission. I changed the. Uh, I tried to keep up unreasonable objectives and drove the business off a cliff. And I was sitting there amidst uh, stockholder suits, franchisee lawsuits, reading a book called The Best and the Brightest by David Halberstam. Mm. And it was a, a, a book about the Johnson and Kennedy administration of the Vietnamese War. And what he maintained was even though the administration, uh, our governmental administration, was run by these ivy leaguers, the best and the brightest our country had to offer. They never really went into the hamlets and into the front lines where the war was being waged mm-hmm. to find out really what the true story was while the Viet Cong were winning the hearts and minds of the of the townspeople and the leadership in the towns. And Sam said that the great fault lie in the fact that our leadership w- Suffered from what he called hubris, the Greek word for arrogance. And sitting there in that chair, and I remembered like it was yesterday, I said, Oh my God, Halberstam could be talking about me. Oh, yeah. And it was in that moment I decided, I, you know, I was blaming franchisees for suing us and uh, problems that we were having in terms of uh, my, one of my key executives left the company because he had lost faith in my leadership a fellow I had gone to business school with. Mm. And, and, and basically we, we convened our management team. We decided that as leadership, we'd never blame our teammates, our followership. We take hundred percent of the responsibility, a hundred percent of the responsibility. And that we then invite, we apologize for the error of our ways. We invited franchise owners in to noodle out with us what we did wrong, how we can improve it. We decided we're going to go, each of us, to visit 100 stores a year each Wow. in order to touch the front lines, travel with the district managers, visit the store, talk to the owners, get their input, and then we created an advisory council. So fundamentally, we did a 180 in terms of our attitude about how we were as leaders, particularly me, what my responsibility was, and it all came from that book, that insight, that momentary its insight from that one book that was transformational.
1: I love that story. The book was called "The Best and Brightest." What What was the full title? "Best and the
2: Brightest" by David Halberstam. I think 1973. It's 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 a bestseller. It was, you know, an important book at the time, and and still, in my view, it's still a great management
1: book. I love that story, and you're right. And going back to what you said prior to the story, where maybe one of the worst things that happened to you, or you know, having that initial success out of the gate when you're that young. And it gives you this false sense of hubris, I guess, or it gives you this sense of hubris and this lack of humility in that you're kind of unstoppable. And yeah, now you had a splat moment, right? You had a series of splat moments that led up to these, you know, your best friend, losing your best friend and your, yeah, people leaving and you're blaming the franchisees. Yeah. And you're reading this book and you have this kind of, wait a second, maybe it's. Maybe I am I'm I need to be more accountable than this than I'm given, you know, than I have been. And yeah, oh, I love that story. How, so when did you read the book, did you like almost get up and say Eureka? And then the next day were you like, okay, I've got to change myself. Or was it kind of a more of a long drawn out process of.
2: Immediate. Immediate. We, we caucused immediately. The team we got together and sort of unveiled and did a mea culpa and then invited people to help and figure out how we could fix this and. And boy, we did fix it. And quite truthfully, for the next four five-year eras, we never looked back again. We put in place uh, a more effective board that would slow me down personally so that I couldn't do this again uh, to make sure that we had more appropriate objectives, better mission. Uh, I had moved from being a focused donut and coffee shop chain that got us out of the morass that I inherited into a morass. And then uh, we went back to be clear and crisper. And more realistic objectives, rather than trying to grow fifty percent a year, we narrowed that back to fifteen percent, ten to fifteen percent a year compounded, and we never looked back again. Actually, and uh, but it, it was that aha moment that I, that I could that. look back. to as the turning point.
1: Well, I've talked about on the show. You know, we've four hundred and thirty plus conversations talking, and one and that is that the theme that comes up time and time again about. There is a moment in everybody's kind of leadership journey, entrepreneur, particularly an entrepreneurial journey, and and talking to entrepreneurs and when they start a business out and and there's just kind of this ethos about entrepreneurship, it's about the entrepreneur, right? And this larger than life personality, this you know, they're three percent of the population come up with this great idea, and it's always about the product and the entrepreneur, and then and if it's gonna be sustainable, and I've talked to many entrepreneurs about this. Where they have had a splat moment where like, okay, I've got to figure this out. This isn't all about me. It's kind of like they have this, like in your case, this spark of this, like the humble teachable spirit God comes down and whacks you over the head, you know, and says, you keep that level of intensity. And I can see that in you, like you you had this kind of hubris intensity, which I think is great. But if you combine that with a humble, teachable spirit, that's when things really start to click. And you said emotional intelligence earlier, like that was kind of your lesson learned. I started really developing my emotional intelligence, which I think is a, a critical key element to, to being to, to leading a significant life. Right. And so I,
2: would, I totally agree. Yeah. And my brother once put it a uh, well to me, which I always remember is when the student is ready, yeah. the teacher will appear. That's right. And uh, David Halberstam was the teacher that appeared.
1: That's so great. And what Yeah, what a great book for the time, right? Right at, right on the heels at the end of the Vietnam War, and everybody's doing this kind of like, what the hell happened over this last decade, right? Yeah. And here was that book. Oh, that's so great. I love that story. So did you start so, – you said you kind of lost one of your key executives, one of your old business school partners. And friend, did he ever come back, come around or did you start surrounding yourself with more, you know, people that were people that were stronger where you were weak around that time? Is that what you started to do?
2: Well, we actually had luckily he had helped me recruit a fellow from a year after us. Both of them had come out of Goldman Sachs. Uh, One was a classmate, the one that left the CFO. But we brought in a a guy to head up HR from banking of all places. (laughs) And he he turned out to be a lifelong partner. His name is Tom Schwartz. And. And quite truthfully, I mean, I, I'm a great believer. If you pull back the curtain behind most successes, mm-hmm. whether it's a country, a family, a business, you won't find one person riding in as a white knight in my view. Yeah. And that, that is not the way I am thrown as a person. I love a much more collaborative collegial environment. Well, Tom um, was, a, was a partner and the people around us, we, we built our team. We were together for a very, very long time. We basically built our team on what I would call complementarity. We celebrated the complementarity of us, that we understood that none of us was an expert in all things and had all the answers. And, in fact, we supported different backgrounds, different educational levels. Um, uh, one a fellow head of operations, Ralph Gavalleri, was a, was a baker. He started his career as a baker, but he turned out to be a phenomenal line executive and head of operations for the company for years. Um great talent and and it was a, a team of uh, of people who helped respected each other no backbiting uh, loved each other Were together for 20 years and we built the business together it really was a um uh, uh that that kind of story that, yeah uh, that's I love a story that. I love to tell because i find when you really do get behind most successful enterprises or families or you generally find that to be true it's not Absolutely. one person it's Absolutely. it's a complimentary group of people
1: yeah, I agree. I can't agree 100. I I love those stories. I love that. I mean, I even look back at my experiences of time in the Marine Corps. I think that's why I look back with with such fondness because there was this love that kind of emanated through that, where we we all realize, you know, none of us is stronger. We're stronger, you know, collectively than we are having looking up to someone like I said, White Knight coming in. And you're absolutely right. I think, and that's what drives me crazy about sometimes the pop culture or the, or the media side of it, or even or kind of the the consensus of business that, you know, oh, this business is failing. Let's bring in the Lone Ranger to come in and save the day. And yeah, you may get a short-term success for that. But when that leader's gone and things go back to that, that's what drives me crazy. I like that sustainability or that legacy building type mentality where you do surround yourself with that. And you get a run where you get people who are sacrificial, who are helping each other out. And it's it's all external. Like the leader, I used to think leaders – you know, I used to think it was about that, that it was my job to motivate or my function was to walk in and motivate. And I've learned a long time ago, hard lessons that I can't motivate anybody. But if I surround myself with people who are smarter than me, uh, I take care of those people around me and I work on myself and and give people the permission, the freedom to do the same, To they see that I'm working on myself, then that's inspiring, right? As opposed to me coming up with some kind of mantra or some catchphrase and stand up there like Patton in my writing boots and my writing crop, you know, I can't, I don't know.
0: I think, and if you are lucky enough to be a leader,
2: authenticity is mm. sort of the coin of the realm. People are perceptive. They watch your every facial movement, your every body language to know whether or not you're being truthful, whether you can be trusted, whether you're being authentic and, and leveling with them. And I think that's incredibly important. you, you got to be true in that regard. Otherwise you will lose, people Amen. follow you they
1: will Amen. basically turn away we've said that on the show so many times that authenticity and transparency are, are kind of the the currencies that are required for you to kind of lead and um well said i, I can't imagine uh, from 63 to 98 and i'm just thinking of all the things that happen economically politically globally a uh, handful of recessions, particularly in the 70s, my God. I mean, how many crises did you, w- w- what you would call genuine crises throughout that that term that you had to face? I you had to face many. I would say
2: four uh, existential life or death crises. The first one occurred in the first phase when we had to change the contract and the way we made our money. Had we not made that decision, we would have... Been, we would have been litigated out of business, mm. and that was a first huge decision. We didn't face the crisis that way. It was a sort of internal crisis. We had to change in an important way and change all the contracts for all the franchisees, two hundred of them wow. at the time. And that that was the first one. The, the second one was a class action lawsuit in the seventies. The one that we worked our way out of. And I think because we were trusting, because we did a one eighty, because we did invite people, and in, because we apologized. 66% of the franchisees opted out of the class action lawsuit wow. that the third circuit had declared declared. Had we lost that lawsuit, we would have lost the company and the business. Wow. The next huge one was a hostile takeover that occurred at the end of the eighties. And, and that too was, was, uh, an absolute life or death kind of battle that we ultimately found a white night at the 11th, one minute to midnight, actually. And luckily found a great company to buy us that saved the day as well too. So there were at least those three that I can rapidly <laughs> march off, clip off in terms of real life or death struggles. Um, I get that that, that, the, that the fate of not only the company, but the franchisees, the people who made their livelihood with the business mm-hmm. were at stake as well too, because had we gone down, they would have gone down with us. Uh, oh. Guy that was trying to buy the business ultimately ran into huge, significant problems, and he was a Canadian, lost his companies, retired. And and my guess was, had we lost that battle uh, for control of the business, uh, I think the business would have failed.
1: Hey, we're about halfway through the conversation, and I wanted to take the time to introduce you to Ben Hutton, the sponsor of today's episode. Ben, tell our listeners what Hutton is all about.
0: Hey, thanks, Richard. You know, we're a huge dose of leadership fans here at Hutton, so I appreciate the opportunity to sponsor your program and be with you here today. You know, Hutton is a commercial architecture and construction firm headquartered in Kansas, but we do work really throughout the Midwest designing and building things like hospitals, office buildings, schools, industrial and manufacturing facilities. But really, uh, more than that, we see ourselves as leaders in the communities that we serve. Yeah, that's
1: one thing I've always appreciated about you knowing you all these years. I love your intention around leadership and your vision as a company. So what do you think makes Hutton different?
0: Sure. You know, Richard, our purpose is to build life into our employees' dreams, clients' visions, and communities' future. We really start with putting our people first, and then we keep people at the center of everything that we do, which really means we walk alongside of our clients from the very first thoughts they have about a building all the way through completion and then maintenance into the future. I
1: love it. That's why I'm glad that you're a sponsor of this show, Ben. So great. How can people learn more about your company?
0: Yeah, so to learn just a little bit more about us, you could go to huttonbuilds.com slash togetherwebuild.
1: Great, Ben. Thanks for being a sponsor. We get asked a lot about how to manage yourself in a crisis, and obviously, being a professional aviator, <clears throat> you know, I've been flying planes for for 35 years, and people always ask me, "Well, how do we deal with crisis?" And and as a, as a pilot, I think a lot of the lessons I've learned um, handling with the crisis, how to be composed, uh, even though I feel like mush on the inside, you know, having that composure and and that that confidence and that consistency, and even the, making the courageous decisions at the right time has played has lent itself really well to me in, the, in my entrepreneurial journey and in the time as uh, an executive in corporate america certainly I, I i always reach back to that were there any consistency around those kind of three or four crises that you dealt with or, or lessons learned like how to compose yourself in that crisis situation like like i always get where people don't know what to do and i think well that's sometimes that's Normal in a crisis, like you don't, because you don't know what the solution is. But like when flying a plane, like we always go to, you know, yeah, you can you can get ahead of yourself, but the first thing you want to do is just fly the plane. <laughs> like first and foremost, just fly the plane, and and you can probably equate to that in business. There are some things you probably just got to pull back and like let's just do the basics first. Let's make sure that I don't know the coffee's being made in the morning, right, or the donuts are being served, you know, and the, the doors are open up. But I guess my question is, are lessons learned on how to compose yourself in those crisis situations, that, that you that you remain that composed force in that crisis?
2: You basically identified the first lesson I learned. In my case, it wasn't as solitary as being a pilot. But the first thing was to, uh, to separate the most qualified small group of people who are most qualified to deal with that particular issue or had some unique understanding of the issue that we were facing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. And then make sure that the rest of the team ran the business on a day-to-day basis and execute and not get distracted by the crisis. The second thing is once you're in there, the same sort of four functions that I see as a CEO is just more intensely have to be practiced in the middle of a crisis is with that small team, identify what the issue is, who are the best experts, what the problem is, and develop a strategy to deal with it. The next thing you have to make sure to do, in my view, is communicate, communicate over and over again, in our case, to the franchise owners and to the staff, because their livelihoods, their lives are entwined. They want to know what's going on. They want to be leveled with. And that's when you have to communicate, communicate, communicate with care, understanding what's going through their minds. What are they worried about? What are their concerns? And so those would be sort of the lessons, but not unlike what you would do. You just fly the plane. Well, we had to make sure that we just (laughs) made the coffee and the donuts every day. That's right. Take a separate team. And usually because of the the events, because the world is stochastic, things do happen. Um, The CEO uh, has got to be involved in that small team because the life and death of the business is at stake. So you have to be in there 100% of the time. You have to rely on the rest of the team to deliver day in and day out to execute.
1: Yeah. And then I love how you said that the communicate piece. I think, it, and I was going to ask you, I think maybe you hit on some of these um, in your book when I was reading the press material about about the release on the book, that you, you do talk about the four functions of a leader. And And did you just hit on some of those, obviously? Uh, first one, the first
2: one is you're the shepherd of strategy. Mm-hmm. I have found in business, as I look back and as even in the midst of it all, and the lesson I learned coming out of Halberstam's is if you don't have the strategy right and if you don't have the organization spot on, there's very little else you can do to create success. So the four functions I see are, one, shepherd strategy. Two, recruit, retain, motivate an organization appropriate to to execute that strategy. Three, communicate over and over and over again to align all constituencies, all constituencies behind that strategy, Mm -hmm. the buy-in. The travel, the meetings and the district managers, uh, team meetings, uh, outings, each and every opportunity to do that. And then the third is manage crisis. Those are the four key functions that after 35 years and then becoming a teacher in my second career uh, at Babson and as an adjunct in the graduate school. And that's how I synthesized the functions I thought most yielded the most amount of results because you can't do everything. And you can't allow everyday occurrences that come in over the transom to dissuade you away from the real key focuses that sort of drive the bus. And uh, those are the things that I I think uh, drive the bus. That's not the whole answer to leadership. No. Those are the functions. You also have to have sort of the character, the values uh, that that go along with it in order to have a successful package.
1: Absolutely. But you, you, you hit some, some great points that I've, that are, resonate with me deeply, particularly at the level of leadership that we're talking about here with, with CEOs. And I've, I've, the handful of CEOs that I've coached, I, I've talked about this, particularly entrepreneurial ones who are, who are at that kind of like we talked about that phase where they they built up the business. Now they're kind of plateauing, and it's and they can't they're not scaling. It's because they're doing too much, right? They're they're in, inserting themselves too low in the business because. That's what they've known. That's what they've done for twenty years or twenty, whatever, however long they've they've taken it to build it up from their college dorm room to, you know, where they're at right now. And but they're 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 plateauing. But what you just said, I think, is the key to that—to kind of taking it or breaking it through. Is like you've got to be the the person behind. Where are we going? Where's the ship going, and why is it going that way? And then once you figure out where it's going and why it's going that way. Like you said, I call it maniacal communication, but you said communicate, communicate. I mean, I think that is the primary function. I mean, it has to be in everything. And I say maniacal because it's like in in every conversation, passing somebody in the hall, you know, everything that you communicate has to somehow remind people where we're going and why we're going that way. And that's, I love what you said. I mean, you're right. And I think that's the key element. And then if you got, that's the other part. Then the second half of the organization has to be you got to have the right people to kind of execute it. Right. And they have to have the courage to, to take what you just said and start asking for forgiveness instead of permission and start making it happen. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and then the, the character thing, the leadership character values and traits, what do you, would you tell a young leader? Like what are the things that are just like non-negotiables f- to be a successful leader in life and in an organization? In my
2: experience, uh, I, I had, a passion for the job. I loved what I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know that going in because I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. But for the first era and success, I had a lot, a lot of passion, uh, and and a passion for the business. You know, I love the business. I love the franchise owners. I loved the people that worked in the company. I, lo- I like the product we sold. I thought we served a higher purpose. You know, people say, "Oh my God, it's just coffee and donuts." But the fact of the matter is, you know, it's millions of people start their day. People, I think, naturally, their biorhythms require, you know, a little skip in this step to start the day, midday yeah. coffee yeah. break, yeah. mid-afternoon, little snack during the day, midnight breaks. Those are part of people's needs. And I thought we did a better job of satisfying those than what existed before us. I think the fact that our franchise offered a way of life initially for mom and pops and later as a real pathway to, to large enterprises was uh, was a real important element of what we did. That was something that drove us. So so I would say passion. I would say humility. I would say trustfulness. You have to be trustworthy and you have to be able to uh, determine trust in others and, in order to be effective. And um, integrity, so to act consistent with your principles. And I think armed with those personal characteristics, I don't think you have to be an extrovert or an introvert. I don't think that I makes a difference. You yeah i i think uh, i think fundamentally uh, if you keep growing and you keep trying to improve yourself i think you said it so eloquently to start with you know work on yourself and and be honest with yourself in terms of where you're strong where you could be better um those are all touchstones for growth and it continues on it it doesn't end i mean i'm at a stage in my life where I, i i have to tell you i I'm learning all the time. I, I just read uh, another book by by uh, Christensen called uh, "How Will You Measure Your Life." Uh, a wonderful, wonderful book that that helped me make my planning even better than it was in terms of what elements of measurement I use. And in his case, he 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 he, he, he argued or put forward the way to really measure a successful life is how many people you can add value to course of your yeah. life and i i think that's a wonder that's a better measurement than mm-hmm. certainly than money in my view in terms of finding peace and fulfillment
1: man it's like you're saying everything that you've said here in the last i don't know 27 minutes is like you're validating everything that we've talked about here in the last eight years and and stuff that i i believe deeply in. and certainly i've learned certainly uh the hard way a lot of the lessons and, to, and, and i love what you said that it, it's not so much about the introversion, the extroversion. Sometimes people get so wrapped up about what type of leadership personality you are. And I know that was me early in my journey in the Marine Corps. I, I'm, I'm entering what I appeared or I thought was this huge type A extrovert where I thought that's where only the successful leaders were, those type of leaders. And I learned throughout the career and then obviously throughout life, I, like, I met some really great introverted leaders that had such a command presence. And the reason why they had that presence was some of the things that you just listed, right? They had that honesty, that integrity, that authenticity, that transparency, that vulnerability, which gave them, in my opinion, such tremendous presence and and power. I don't know if power is the right word because sometimes power can be misconstrued. But you know what I mean? Like a positive presence and power that, that you would want to follow somebody. You know, I would follow this person because of what you just listed.
2: I would suggest that power is not a negative word. Power is nothing more than the ability to get things done. Yeah, to kind of bad depending upon how you use it. Yes. So power is, I think, a good word. Uh, it's all how it's used. But power can be a, a force for good, a real force for good.
1: I agree with you. Yeah. Maybe influence is kind of tied with that. Influence might be a better way to to present it, which is has elements of power in it, I think. Right. And yeah, you use your forces for good or evil. Hopefully you're using them for for good. Yeah. But the, the, I want to go back to what you said, too. I love about the purpose and, and the... um or the passion anyway having that passion and then finding uh i always contend when you when you can insert yourself insert yourself anywhere it doesn't matter what what the product is and if you can wrap your arms around what what are we trying to accomplish here and you said it great and one person's going to say well it's just coffee and donuts i mean how sexy is that but you're like no hold on a second you know people need to get their you know they're starting their morning off and you know it's you know it's monday morning it's drudgery you know That's why I think I thought about when you said that, you know, the classic where I really think Duncan really started to to become a a national powerhouse was, you know, it's time to make the donuts era, you know, the brand, you know, the guy walking in the morning. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And now it's true. I mean, it it actually was developed after I retired, but it says it so eloquently America runs on Duncan and, Mm -hmm. and that is its purpose. And it really does help people get through the day. Yeah. and that's a worthwhile thing to devote your life to.
1: You know, one thing we haven't talked a lot about on this show uh, is the kind of the franchisee, franchisor kind of relationship. I I dipped my toe in that a little bit when I was working for a hotel company and I became I was the vice president of brand communication. And it was my job to communicate with the, the franchisee. And I learned a lot about behind the scenes, about the importance of brand standards, about the importance of of communicating consistently with the franchisees. And the the challenge that I found with working with that was like, okay, here, I got a lot of these... And man, the types of personalities that were franchisees were all over the board. But you've got people who are entrepreneurs, like full-fledged entrepreneurs. You've got wannabe entrepreneurs. You've got people that have come into a large amount of money with no business experience, and all of a sudden they think they're business professionals. I mean, you've got it all over the board. And managing that was like herding cats for me. And it was exciting and challenging. But man, I learned a lot about business, entrepreneurship, that franchisee, franchisor relationship, brand standards. I learned a ton the time that I did that. Talk to me a little bit about about that the importance of a, the franchisee franchise or a relationship
2: I, I think franchising is a little underst- less understood it could, particularly for would-be entrepreneurs should be giving some consideration for it be from the franchisor's point of view the fellow that or the business the, the man or woman who has a business and wants to expand it has worked out the the, the, uh, the, the wrinkles in the in the concept and got it running it's showing a fair return. Uh, and then they want to expand it and they need both online frontline management as well as maybe capital to expand the business. It's a terrific opportunity. But for the individuals considering business ownership or entrepreneurship, I think that it is a way to really reduce risk dramatically. Mm-hmm. Most business startups can be as high as, oh, my goodness, and maybe. 50 or 80 percent. I've heard different numbers within the first five years, but it's significant. And that is reduced dramatically by owning a franchise. So when you buy a franchise as an individual, uh, you may be in business by uh, for yourself, but you're not in business by yourself. Someone has already worked out a lot of uh, the do's and don'ts, the mistakes, the the three to five year entrepreneurship uh, um, apprenticeship that's required to really learn a business. I, I'm a big believer in that when we we're teaching entrepreneurship at, at Babson. Uh, one of the key lessons that, that was determined that can ha- put the odds in your favor in terms of, of business ownership is, is knowing the field you're in. Uh, I'm a sort of a believer in an 80, 20 rule that that, yeah. that, uh, that 80% of successful entrepreneurs have spent three to five years in the industry within which they start their business. It reduces the risk. And today there are seven hundred thousand business format franchisees in, in, in the country, and if you consider dealerships and and distributorships, uh, which are also uh, people that are associated with a, another business or brand, I think that maybe as much as twenty five percent of the goods and services in the United States are distributed in that manner. People associating themselves with a larger brand or business format, and I think it is a wonderful business. And today. Duncan started as sort of a mom-and-pop business, a wonderful way for people to improve their standard of living. As we transformed the business, as we changed it, as we began to go to self-service and distribute our product beyond the four walls of the store, very much like Coca-Cola did in its early years when they put it from a fountain into a bottle and distributed it all over the world, we were sort of doing the same kind of thing. The business now today has created networks of franchisees where a franchise owner can end up with Literally hundreds of units. Mm -hmm. And and there are some franchisees that are worth tens of millions of dollars. Wow. These are people that if you go into a community, you often might find the automobile dealer. And I know in Miami, that's the case with Bremen. You might find in a Midwestern, the John Deere dealership. And in some communities, you'll find the Dunkin' Don franchise owner employs a lot of people and are part of the pillar of society in those communities. So it's not only a wonderful way for people to change their standard of living for family, it also can be a pathway to immense wealth creation. It is a wonderful system of doing business. And yes, it has its challenges, as you saw when you were a brand manager. You had to get people to go along. That's why communication is so important. But everybody has to sort of buy into the quality story. Everybody has to understand the importance of the network and the system. And they have to get behind it. They have to be involved through advisory councils. We have to be, as management, open to their suggestions because some of the best ideas we had have come directly from the field. As a matter of fact, in my my era, a lot of them came from the field. Mm -hmm. And and all the execution happened in the field. And these are terrific people, great teammates to have uh, to build a business. So I find it a phenomenal system. Uh, of distribution and a phenomenal business opportunity. And I would highly recommend it to any would-be entrepreneur.
1: Yeah. I, 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 you said a couple of things there that, that stood out. I, I remember transitioning or it came clear to me early on. And I had another person that I worked for on the brand side. um, And she was, she really was a stickler with the brand, which I understood. Uh, It's kind of like, you know, if McDonald's makes French fries a certain way, they, you know, they don't want the guy in Poughkeepsie using his brother's fry machine and his his certain amount of oil. No, you got to use the same oil because I want the fries to sound, taste the same as they do in Shanghai as they do in Poughkeepsie, right? So, All right. that was clear to me. But but uh, having that uh, open openness to to take suggestions from those people, those franchisees, because they got a lot of life experiences, they've got you know that was really fun to me to kind of take those and bring them into the fold and kind of get some of those best practices and, and, and best ideas. Um, it was fun to get when it, when it hit, you know, when you found something that really kind of changed the paradigm shift of the business and it was fun to see, but it was also challenging to, to, <laughs> to manage too, because you had some people that just knew better, right? Like, Oh, we know better. I've been in business, you know, I loved it though. I loved it. And, and I grew up in the seventies too, as a kid. And I had a lot of friends whose dads were fathers were franchise owners when Pizza Hut and Dairy Queen was really taking off. and you know, In Wichita, Kansas, Pizza Hut was big, right? And so a lot of Pizza Hut franchisees, a lot of my friends' dads, and watching them, and you talk about standards of living, I saw that their standard of living and that wealth creation happen in that kind of heyday of the Pizza Hut franchise. Yeah, fun stuff.
2: You know, in the depths of the 70s, I got a a call from one of our better franchise owners, a fellow by the name of Bob Demery, and he said, you gotta come down and see what Edna done. Edna was his wife. She took the donut holes is we used to only sell at Halloween and put in a little cellophane bag and put them on the clips that you use to, you know, see potato chips when you go into yeah, a store. Right. Uh-huh. Potato chip And we sold them only around Halloween time because we thought it was a good item to give away for trick-or-treaters. And he said she made a special cutter up one fifth of a donut size and she started filling with jelly and all different kinds of fillings and, and finished them a different way, piled them high in the front showcase. And our business is up 20 percent. Customers are <laughs> Just head over heels in love with the product. Come on down and see it. So we got in the car the next day. and We went down and said, sure enough, there it was. You know, it was a different way of doing it, and and that was the the, the birth of Munchkins and the <laughs> seventy three. The the lines from the coffee uh, from the the gas limitations and and odd and even days of filling a car with gas and the the the, the embargoes yeah. and all the other problems that we had. We introduced Munchkins then. <laughs> And our business was up 12% in the midst of all of that. That was just in the nick of time. And it came from a franchise owner's wife.
1: That's beautiful. I love that. I love those stories. I love that. You know, that's what makes business fun, entrepreneurship fun, franchising fun, as if you can kind of tap into that creativity. And those, they come out of nowhere, you know, the unexpected, you know, I wasn't expecting this. And they just, they just, they just crop up. Man, I could talk to you about so much stuff, and I'm excited for the book to come out. It comes out October 13th, I believe. Is that right? Is that when we're... That's right,
2: October 13th. And the website is uh, around the corner to around the world, and uh, they have a a pre-order incentives to begin to read it and certain lessons that are available early for early order.
1: I can't wait to get this. this. I mean, everything you're saying, again, has resonated deeply. I wish I could... You've pretty much summed up the last eight years of all the conversations that I've had with 435 people, the stuff that that, <laughs> that I believe wholeheartedly, particularly the, the lessons about the humility. I mean, you're a perfect example, in my opinion, of someone who's has that intensity of will. You've never lost it. Like you said, you're constantly learning. You're in your 80s. You've just learned, you know, you, you're constantly, you look at life knowing that there's always something else to be learned. And I think that's, probably one of the most dangerous signs for anybody is when you've planted the flag and you've said, I've arrived and you put your feet up on the desk, man, the next thing you're going to get is a fall, right? Because you, you got to have that humble, teachable spirit.
2: I think I'd add one additional quality that I was adding to humility, integrity, and others It would be persistence. Oh yeah. To, and it never, it never stop. And uh, I, th- I think part of the secret to youth even is, is to have another dream and to be aspirational and continue to strive. I'm now trying to form my, my fourth act. And, uh, and, uh, I'm in the midst of doing that, thinking it through, right. As we speak.
1: That's awesome. Well, yeah. again, you said it again, you, another gem that that comes out consistently on the show is the tenacity piece, right? It's less about, and probably that is probably the number one lesson when people ask me <clears throat> when I, people talk, they ask me about my podcast and like, what's the biggest lesson you've learned. That's probably the one that's come out the most is that it's less about the talent. It's more about the tenacity and never giving up. And I think Yeah. I can't tell you how many people have said, "Look, that guy and this gal—they were smarter than me. They had more money. They were more talented. They were better. The only reason I came out ahead is because I went one more day and they didn't." You know? Yeah. My
2: whole—my whole story is second chances. My—my my life has been a testimony to the fact that I've often gotten a second bite of the apple. Yeah. And I never gave up. And I was true. I didn't get into the school of my choice a lot of things along the way didn't work out quite the way i had hoped and planned but but found out that actually a lot of these lemon lemonade, lemons turned out to be lemonade as i look back and and uh, if i if i had to pass anything on i guess that would be one of the things i would pass along to the next generation is is keep on trucking keep on swimming
1: I love it well what's the, what's the fourth act you mentioned you're kind of mulling it over is there anything you want to share with it? what what do you kind of
2: in the in the 19 in 1968 i was in the chairs to become a chairman of the international franchise association i was the 10th chairman of that trade association in 1970 and in 1968 we had the kind of same turmoil that we face today in terms of uh, underserved communities Uh, black lives matter wasn't called that then Uh, the death of martin luther king death of bobby kennedy riots in the street burning down cities in detroit and elsewhere and it was my hope uh, that I could put together a group of compatible franchise offerings. So, whether it be a McDonald's, with a one-hour modernizing, with a with a with a small uh, convenience store, a Seven Eleven, to bring a, a group of ten or eleven businesses into a burned-out area that was once a thriving retail mm-hmm. space in an underserved community owned by minority owners, employing uh, minority. Um, people of color, as as employees and as and as owners of the business, um, and I had SBA approval. Uh, Howard Samuels was chairman of the SBA then, and he supported the idea. And I couldn't get enough support in Boston, and I gave up. And oh, I just the hard- there was so much distrust and fear uh, that I, I didn't have the skill and the story to tell then. And I think that that would be an idea that where I have some knowledge, some ability to be able to bring that idea back. I would like to try it in enterprise zones. Now, I know there are enterprise zones, but they don't deal specifically with biz- business ownership. It is a wonderful way, I think, to, to bring uh, the franchise system to an underserved community for everybody's benefit. The customer, the consumer, the, the, the owner, the employees, uh, the franchisor, all, everybody wins.
1: I love it. Well, I'm anxious to see what you do with that because I think you're spot on. I mean, when you were explaining the idea, again, in, in a lot of what you were describing back then in, in 68 and that time is a lot of kind of what we're seeing in, in all aspects of today, right? With the chaos that we're seeing today.
2: Same. It's to a repeat. Yeah. My,
1: yes. No, that's exciting. I'd love to see where that goes. And Bob, this is amazing. I mean, you have I'm going to name you. Uh, Honorary Chairman of the Dose of Leadership Tribe because you've you've pretty much summed up the last eight years of this show in one. So I think I maybe I should just retire at this point and let this. Be uh, a, this that's
2: high Please don't. I don't <laughs> want to be the source of that.
1: <laughs> but but seriously, I really do appreciate this conversation. I'm glad to know you. I'd love to keep in touch with you. I'd love to, to learn more about you. I'm excited for the book to come out. Um, and I'm I'm happy to promote it. And I'm so thrilled that you came on this show. Um, Thanks for thank
2: the invitation. That you. was a wonderful. Yeah.
1: Thanks for coming on the show, Bob. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse. Tell your kids. Tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dose Leadership brings to your world. Go to dosaleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.